So today we begin in chapter 2, chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. So turn with me to chapter 2 of Ephesians, and we'll be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. And as you get there, have you ever met up with someone who you haven't seen in a really long time? And when you uh, talk to them, you realize that they have completely changed. They are nothing like you ever remember them being uh, when you knew them some time ago. Now, sometimes those complete changes aren't for the better, right? Sometimes they're, they're worse, and sometimes you realize, like, oh, boy, what happened in your life that, that led you to this point? There's some, something bad has happened to you. But other times, uh, the, the changes are for the better. You, you talk to them, and you realize that they're a completely different person, that they, that they really have changed and for the better. They were a scoundrel when they were younger, and now they're an upstanding citizen of society, maybe. Right? The, these kind of life changes, the fundamental large changes of life are rare. They don't often happen. Uh, often what we find is that, yep, you're pretty much the same person I remember you to be 20 years ago. But they do happen. And if that person, especially if we, that person when we knew them, weren't a believer, they 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 didn't believe in Christ, and now they do, we often expect, actually, we should anticipate that there is a large change in who they are now. Because a significant change has taken place. Well, today, as we come to our passage, we begin to work towards some of the most famous verses in the book of Ephesians, right? But before we get there, Paul wants to remind the Ephesian church, right? And these are the Christians that gather in Ephesus who they once were. And as he does so, he points to the reality that is true of all humanity. And this is what I want us to understand in our passage today, that all humanity is dead in sin, following in the footsteps of Satan and destined for God's wrath. All humanity is dead in sin, following in the footsteps of Satan, and destined for God's wrath. But what a difference there is for the believer, and we'll see that today. So as we get there, I want us to, to read God's word. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This is God's word, and receive it as such. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there are a few things we need to bear in mind as we come to our passage today. Uh, the first is, and this is, I sound like a broken record on this, but here we have another long sentence in the Greek. And actually it goes from verses 1 to 7. That's one long sentence in the Greek. Uh, our English translations break it up for us because our grammar demands such uh, consistency. It's easier for us, right? Uh, we are not Greeks. Uh, so uh, I just want to point that out when we, when we are looking at this. We're only looking at verses 1 through 3, but Paul's consideration, Paul's thought, what his purpose is, is really in verses 1 through 7. And it's really significant for us in 1 through 3 because even though in our English we may have sentences here, there really isn't a sentence. Verses 1 through 3, there is no subject or verb. That doesn't come in until verses 4 and 5. So verses 1 to 3 are a preamble for the actual point of the passage, which is in verses 4 and 5. And so you may ask, well, why are you separating it up? Because, again, the, right, our English grammar uh, demands something different. I think we can see this thought, we can understand this segment, and then uh, be able to work it in to the rest of the passage, the rest of the sentence, the, the context of the whole book. 
But just so we have an understanding here of what's going on. The second thing we need to understand is that uh, is that of Christ's supremacy, right? Christ's prominence as ruler and authority. And we get this at the end of chapter one, right? That's that's what we were dealing with at the end of chapter one. Chapter two only makes sense. What we're talking about only makes sense in the context of Christ being in verse uh, chapter one, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Right? We have to understand that Jesus is being seated in glory impacts how we live today, impacts our salvation. The third thing is that this letter is written to the church, and I know that seems uh, perhaps uh, obvious to us. The audience in view here is the church, and we'll see that as we unpack our passage today, is that you see that Paul is writing to the Ephesians about their past state, not their current state, not their future state. What we have in verses 1 through 3 is their past state. And I emphasize that because we have to understand, even as I summarize this passage for us, is that all humanity is not in this past state of verses 1 through 3. All humanity is living in the current state of being dead in their sins, unless they are in Christ. Right. So what we're what we're discussing today is for the church, not for everybody everywhere. Although it can be true of them if they believe, right? If God has elected them from before the foundations of the world, chapter one tells us. So I just emphasize that because to understand that this past state is not true of the majority of the people in the world, nor is it true of the majority of the people in this community around us. So we have to understand that there is a distinction. It's far different to the Christian one. The natural condition of this world is one of being dead. And that's what I want us to see first in verse 1 of chapter 2, dead. Paul begins with the word and. And again, this here is a connecting word and it connects us back to what has come before. But it's distinct from what has come before because Uh, Paul is shifting subjects in a sense. At the end of chapter 1, we have a prayer for the Ephesians, right? Paul is saying, this is what I pray for you, that you would know, you would know Christ, that you would know God, you would know the hope to which you have been called, you would know the inheritance of the saints, you would know the power of God at work in you, that same power which rose Christ from the grave and seated him at the right hand in authority far above all rule and authority. So now we begin to move to the reality of God's work in us in Jesus. Now the King James Version here in in verse 1 says, reads, and you you hath he quickened who, so instead of saying, and you who are dead, it says, and you who hath he quickened who, And it seems to bring forward the point of the passage, which is found in verse 5. So that's not in the original Greek there. But the translators of the King James Version is trying to give us an insight into what's coming to make it make sense in our grammar. Again, so just just so that we deal with the complexities of this passage, we understand that. But Paul describes the Ephesians as the the state of, of them as dead. They were dead. And what was this death caused by? Trespasses and sins. And these words are near synonyms, right? They mean largely the same thing. And and Paul's referring here, he's using this here not to describe two sets of sins, right? Not two categories of sins, but just to describe all kinds of sin, all kinds of moral violation, uh, violation of God's law, failing to obey God's standard. Right, all kinds of wrongdoing. That's what's in view here. They were dead in the ways in which they disobeyed God. 
and understand that that is what sin is, right? It's a violation of God's standard. It has behind it, and you may have heard it this way before, that that word sin has connotations of missing the mark. Say you're shooting an arrow and you're trying to hit the bullseye. Well, if you don't hit the bullseye, you miss the mark. And that's kind of the idea, right? Sin misses the mark. God, as our creator, as perfect and holy, gets to set the standard for his creatures. He gets to determine what is right and good and true. Just as a father, perhaps, sets what is good and right and true in his home. And running around and doing parkour off the walls may not be it, right? That may be a violation of the standard that he sets. But what is right and good and true in accord with what God sets is in, is in line with his holy character. And we have to understand that God always makes morally right decisions. What God does is always right. He never has to decide what is right in a situation because it comes naturally to him, we might say. It flows from his character. Of Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, listen to this about Jesus, our creator, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to, to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The great difference between Christ Jesus and us and our humanity is that he never sinned. He was tempted, but he always knew what is right, and he always chose the right. But for us, we often have to decide what is right in a situation. Right? As we come to any situation, and we may do this uh, subconsciously, right? we may do this without thinking, but we make some kind of determination about what is right in a situation, a given situation. So we may think through it, and we may say, well, I know what the right thing is to do, and I'm going to do it. So we do what is right. We may approach a situation, though, and say, I know what the right thing is to do, but I'm not going to do it. I know it'd be right to be nice and let that person in, in front of me in line because they have only a few items and I have a whole cartload. But you know what? Forget about them. I'm in a hurry. They're going to take time. I know it always happens when I let someone in front of me, then they're fumbling about, then they pull out their checkbook and start writing a check. And who writes a check these days? I'm not going to let them do it, right? So we may know the right thing to do, we may know what love commands us to do, and we may choose not to do it. Or the third thing is, we may not even be able to tell what the right thing is to do. There are some situations, some circumstances, which to us are morally gray. We don't know what the right thing is. We can't determine it. And so in those situations, we often do what we think is best. Well, this is what I think is right. That's what I'm going to do. Understand that that is not how it is with God. None of that is how it is with God. God always knows what the right thing is to do, and he always does the right thing. Also realize that's not how it should be for us either. We should know what the right thing is to do. God has spoken to us, and he's given us his word that we know, may know what is right and true. But we also know that that's not always the case for us. Why were there lawyers in the old, under the Old Testament law? Because sometimes someone had to determine what God had said and understood about a situation and apply God's law to a particular situation. But, but all that we're considering under these terms of trespasses and sins are, are the ways in which we know the right thing to do and don't do it, or we don't know the right thing to do and we don't do it anyways, right? So, so whether we are committing actual transgressions, we are violating God's law, or we're failing to do what God has commanded us to do. It's all the things that we think and say and do which are not in accord with the righteousness of God. 
and realize when we talk about being dead in the trespasses and sins, that in many ways that this is a nonsensical statement to those who are in the world. This is nonsensical to those who are not in Christ. And why do I say that? Because if you went up to anybody on the street, the average person, and said, you're dead, they would look at you and go, you're crazy, right? They say, look at I'm breathing, I'm living, I'm not dead. This isn't some M. Night Shyamalan movie, right? I'm not dead. They'll look at you funny. And to this, we must remark, as one commentator does, that what Paul expresses here only makes sense to someone who is alive in Christ. The dead don't know they're dead until they're made alive. We can only understand the reality of our deadness when we've been made alive through salvation. God's word has been given to you so that you may understand these things. And God's spirit is given to his people that they may see and know and believe these things. And we have to understand that this dead condition is a desperate condition. What do I mean by that? Well, if you walk into a morgue and start shouting, wake up, what's going to happen? If you go out into the cemetery and you start shaking the gravestones, trying to cajole people to get up out of their grave, what happens? Well, if life were a zombie movie, right, then, then maybe something would happen. But life is not a zombie movie. Reality is the dead do nothing. The dead rot. The dead person is dead. Which, by the way, that's probably the most profound statement you're going to hear this morning. God's word is much more profound, but the dead is dead. They can do nothing. And what's remarkable about this is that what Paul is describing here, he's not saying that the Ephesians are literally dead. He walked into the church and they were all dead. But they were all spiritually dead. We all, outside of God's work in us, are spiritually dead dead we have a dead spirit brothers and sisters in christ this is who you were dead in your spirit contrary to so much teaching and preaching you are not someone who needs just a little spiritual help you are not someone who just needs to muster up enough strength to revive yourself to grab on to the life preserver or any other number of metaphors that people intend to use Churches talk about putting on revivals, and in the language you use, you think it'd be just a matter of deciding what you want to have for dinner. You know what? I'm going to choose to be alive. I'm dead, but I can just will myself alive. That's what it's going to be. Right? And perhaps here the King James Version is helpful, and you hath he quickened. In other words, in you has he made alive. Again, we get that down in verse 5. But understand, who is it that makes us alive? Who gives us spiritual life? Who is the one that creates in us what we cannot and will not create in ourselves? Well, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And this is a passage that we might be uh, well familiar with. This is the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a strange vision that Ezekiel has, but it's one that speaks to the very situation which Paul is dealing with in the book of Ephesians. Ezekiel 37, I want to start with reading verses 1 through 3. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he sent me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Let's just pause there and note. This means they aren't recently dead. This means they've been dead dead. They've been out in the sun and they've dried. There's no marrow left. There's nothing good in them. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Why does Ezekiel answer that way? Because the 
The answer should be obvious. No, these bones can't live. They're dead and dry. If I were to pick one up, I could snap it in two. Dust would fly forth. And then it'd get in your face and then you'd be like coughing and stuff. It'd be really gross, right? What's the point? Why does Ezekiel respond this way? Because he knows dead things don't come back to life. Because he knows you can't make a pile of dead bones to do anything. Because he knows that if he, even he were to arrange them in their proper order, put clothes on them, guess what they would be? Dead bones. He can't change what they are. But who can? Ezekiel 37, 4-6. Look at this. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause my breath to enter you, and you shall live. Friend, this is what God does in salvation. It's not because we're wise enough to understand the scriptures. It's not because we're strong enough to pick ourselves up and give ourselves breath. It's not because we're rich enough to pay someone else to do the work for us, which, by the way, is what so many uh, prosperity gospel preachers promise. And by the way, that holds true for self-help authors, right? Pay me enough money, take my course, and you will live. No, if we live, it's because God has mercy on us and says to us, live, breathe, be filled with my spirit, and live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When God saves us, when he opens our ears to hear the truth, when he gives us sight to see the risen Lord Jesus, he makes us to know and understand that he is the Lord. And friend, if you understand something of this, if you understand that you're in a completely hopeless state, if you grasp that you need something more than anything that you can do, then look unto Christ Jesus. Plead with God to save you. Ask him to give you new life. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So to begin, we find that the believer's state is one of dead. And let's see how next that they're also followers. So back in Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verse 2. And just to underscore the point of the change that happens in the life of believer, we continue the thought from verse 1. So it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And this idea of walking is the idea of living. So this is the way that you lived your life. The trespasses and sins are a lifestyle. And that's, by the way, the problem with sin. It's not just that we sin here or there. It's not just the problem that you know, every once in a while we'll do something wrong, but hey, we do other good stuff to try and outweigh the wrong. The problem with you is not that you sin, it's that your lifestyle is one of sin. You walk in sin. You're stained and marred to the very core of yourself by sin. Sin is ingrained in us. Our desire to violate the moral laws of God is natural to us. So he says here of the Ephesians, these are things you once walked in. You once lived this way. And this should be something that causes us to reflect on our own lives because what Paul here describes as the Ephesians is that they used to be defined by their sins. But what about you? If you call yourself a Christian, how do you walk? How do you live your life? What defines or characterizes your life? 
And I ask this question because, listen, listen closely to this. There are many who call themselves Christians, but if you begin to examine their lives, they walk in the same sins and trespasses that they did before they ever claimed they were a Christian. They live just like the world around them lives. And brothers and sisters, those who call yourself Christian, this cannot be. Romans 6 Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friend, you may call yourself a Christian, but is there newness of life? You may not be what you think you are if there is no newness of life. The Christian life, the true Christian, the one who is alive in Christ, has a changed life. And it has to be that way. It cannot be any other way. To continue to live in sin, to continue to walk in sin, means that what you profess and what you possess are very different. None of this means that you will never sin again as a Christian. So what I'm not saying here, don't, don't hear me, brothers and sisters, don't hear me to say that you should never sin again. You should never sin again. But it doesn't mean that you will never sin again. Paul at the end of Romans 7, I believe, describes what life is as a Christian. One of war. One of struggle. One of when I want to do, go and do good, evil lies close at hand. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, verse 1, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? He says, I don't want you to sin. But he also acknowledges Christians struggle with sin. And if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father who lives to intercede for you. Jesus Christ the righteous stands before the Father interceding on your behalf. And to that we must say, praise God. But listen, if the trajectory of your life is ever sin word. That, by the way, is what Paul describes here as following the course of this world, right? Following the course of this world, following after the age of the times, following after this sinful world, doing the same things that they do, living the same way that they live. If you walk in disobedience to God and claim to be in Christ, there is something very wrong in your life. Sin is unnatural for the Christian even as we will see in the next verse, that sin is very natural for the unbeliever, for those outside of Christ. But if that's you today, if you walk, if you live in your sins and your sin doesn't concern you, you don't really think you need to repent of it, you don't really think you need to change, God's word is clear, you're headed down a deadly path. You are working lawlessness and do not be surprised on the day of judgment where Christ says to you, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So turn from such death and turn to Christ Jesus the righteous. Trust in him and ask him for his strength. So the Ephesians used to be defined by sins and trespasses, sins and offenses. They were dead in them, and they walked in them, and they lived in them, and they did the same thing that the world around them did. And he continues and say, it's not just that they're following the course of this world. It's not just they're living out the, the times of the ages. They weren't just, uh, when in Rome, be a Roman. But they were actually following, look at this in, in verse 2, following 
the prince of the power of the air. And there is little doubt here that the prince in view is Satan. What Paul is describing here is a world that is enthralled to Satan. They are slaves to the evil one. This world is under his authority, in a sense. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4.4. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right, there is a God of this world that stands in opposition to the God of all creation. There is a prince of this world that rules and has authority and power, though limited. Right, we looked at it last time when we were talking about uh, Christ being far above all rule and authority and power. But we could look at the temptation of Jesus when Jesus... Uh, is brought before, Satan brings before him all the glories and the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, these can be yours if you would just bow and worship me. Right? So Satan does have authority, limited authority over the earth, but Satan is not all-powerful. Let me never confuse you and say anything different. Do not believe that Satan is all-powerful. Christ is all-powerful. He will be victorious always. At the end of the age, there is no doubt that God wins. The book of Revelation is not uh, some Star Wars story where we hope the good guy wins, but we're not quite sure. No, God wins. But we also have to deal with the reality here that there are evil spiritual forces that are, that are at work to harm and destroy humanity. We have to realize that as Christians, we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against the prince of the power of the air. Everyone in this world has a master. And now I know it's popular for us to think, especially here in the land of the free, that we have no masters. And we would probably remark about this the same way that the Jewish people do, uh, the Jewish religious leaders in John 8, when Jesus says, I'm here and I'm going to set you free. And they respond, what are you talking about, Jesus? We, we're not, we have no masters. We're not been slaves. Uh, even though they were under Roman subjugation, but, you know, whatever. Everyone in this world has a master. And it's either God, our Lord Jesus Christ, or it's Satan. The prince of the power of the air. Now, this reference to air could be a Jewishism referring to kind of a political domain or a spiritual domain of transcendent beings that are in opposition to Christ. Uh, just as uh, Christ is set at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, this might be kind of like an intermediary uh, place where we might see supernatural beings, evil supernatural beings at work. Uh, again, we could look forward to Ephesians chapter 6 and see that, again, our, our war isn't against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. But regardless of how we take that, right, this is Satan and he has uh, command and control in limited way. But what do we note about these people? What do we note about the world? What do we note about the, this world's master is that they follow after the evil one. They follow after the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Satan, as he rules the world, that he's not also at work in the lives of those who are not in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be surprised when those outside of Christ act in evil ways doing the very thing that their master loves. Don't be surprised when this world acts like the devil. This world and its systems and the peoples of the earth are thralls of the evil one. 
And friend, understand that if Christ is not your master, the devil is. And you may balk at that. You may say, well, I'm a good person. I would never. You may say that you're spiritual. Or use whatever other language you want to use. But understand that if Christ is not your master, Satan is. And you follow his rules and laws and world, and you will end up in the same place as him. Peter describes Satan's work this way, right? He, he says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he writes, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Or what does Satan answer to God when asked what's he been doing in the book of Job? We've looked at that before, but Job 1.7. Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. <coughs> or when Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders, look at John 8. Look at John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44. As Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders, how does he describe them in relation to the adversary? John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you understand the great difference between the character of Christ and the character of Satan? Christ tells the truth always. Satan tells lies always. Right? When, when Jesus says uh, their desires, what are their desires? But their desires are the desires of the prince of the power of the air. Their desires is the same desire of their master, their father, which isn't God. They are for harm, destruction, devastation. Satan delights in evil, and we shouldn't, not be surprised when those who are not in Christ delight in evil. We should not be surprised at the culture around us that lauds and applauds, right, applauds evil things. That shouldn't surprise us. They're just delighting in the thing their father delights in. And if Satan is your master, you will do the things that he wants. We have to understand as Christians that people around us aren't neutral. Right? People around us aren't neutral. They may say, well, you know, I don't know that I really want to believe Christ, but I'm a good person and I want to do good things. They're not neutral. They follow their master. There is spiritual war going on. But also remember believers whom Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church. What he is describing was, and that's such an important word, was true of those in Christ. But it's not any longer. We who are in Christ follow a different master and understand that while we war, we don't fight a losing battle. 1 John 4, 4 encourages us to this end. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christ Jesus is superior to all rule and authority, including Satan. One day, listen, and this is fundamental, Philippians 2. I know we often think of this in this term of ourselves or other people around us. But understand that this is true for Satan as well. One day, Satan will bow before Jesus and confess with his lips that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 
There is spiritual war at work in this world. Satan has many in his camp, but the armies of the Lord are mighty because the Lord is almighty. We will confess what Jonathan confessed before going up against the Philistines. Do you remember that story in 1 Samuel 14? The armies of the Lord aren't really doing anything. The people of Israel really aren't doing anything. He sees the Philistines over there and he says, well, maybe we should go up to them. Maybe we should go and battle them. 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. How often he saves by few. Right? How often we look at that. The, the stories in the Old Testament are there to encourage us to this end. Right? Sometimes the people of God pray and say, God, we need you to deliver us from the situation to give us strength for the battle ahead. And they get up the next morning to go and fight. And they look over the fields of battle and everyone's already decimated and dead. Why? Because the armies of the Lord were at work. Because God saved his people by few. Who can stand against the one who is mighty in war? None. We say, praise God. So before God's gracious work of salvation, we are dead in sins. We follow the course of this world, right? We're, we're doing the same thing. Uh, we're living out the same ways that this age around us is. Uh, we walk in the footsteps and under the reign and rule of the evil one. Surely such are children of disobedience, right? Sons of disobedience, children of disobedience. That's what characterizes them. And they are children of their father who is himself disobedient. And this is natural. And that's what I want us to see thirdly. Natural. Verse three. Among whom... And again, who's the whom of among whom here? Among whom? That is among the sons of disobedience, among this world, among those who follow the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh or the lusts of our flesh. And we have to realize again here that a great change has taken place in the life of a believer when a person is born again, when he is saved. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out, right? Verse 3, we carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Normally we have here, we're just carrying out the desires of the flesh, but I think Paul wants us to understand that it's not just some external force upon us, but it's internal, right? It's our mind, it's our thoughts, it's our own desire, our own will. James writes to the church. James writes to the church in James 1, verses 14 and 15. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted. When Satan comes to him and whispers in his ear, uh, sweet little temptations. No, that's not what James writes. What does James write? He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Does Satan tempt us to sin? Sometimes. But here's the reality of our sinful flesh. We don't need Satan to tempt us to, be, to, to desire wrong things. Our own fleshly desires tempt us enough. We are not grudging followers of the prince of the power of the air. We enjoy the things that he enjoys. Evil desires are at home in us outside of God's work in Christ. We don't need to look far to find temptation to sin. We don't need other people to, to tempt us to sin. And indeed, sometimes we say that. We excuse our sin with those words. We say, listen, what I'm doing doesn't hurt anyone else. So it can't be sin because it's not hurting anyone else. We are enticed by sexual lust and we think that looking at porn isn't so bad because we aren't actually doing anything with anyone else. But Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. To lust after a man is a violation of the purity of the marriage bed. 
We must confess, as James does, that when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's true of sin, whether it involves another person or not. This is the kind of life all people live. Right? We, we carry out the desires of the body and mind. We live in the passions, the lusts of our flesh. Beloved, you once walked this way. You were by nature, by characteristic, children of wrath, just like the rest. ESV adds on there for us of mankind to help us to understand that this is in reference to all humanity, right? All, all humanity is by nature, by characteristic, children of wrath but God. And I get ahead of myself there in verse 4. The reality of what Paul is describing for us here in verses 1 through 3 is that all humanity, right, all mankind is dead in sin, following in the footsteps of Satan and destined for God's wrath. And your nature, friend, is to be a child of God's wrath. Why? Because sin is repugnant in his eyes. Sin is evil in his eyes, right? Sin is not a good thing. And no matter how good it may feel to us, it is evil. It's against what God has commanded and created us for. You are children of wrath destined for the destruction, which is deserving of all such rebels against their creator, God, apart from the intervening work of God. And what made the change in the lives of the Ephesians, why Paul could write to them about who they were, not who they are, who they were, is because God has saved them. God had opened their eyes to see the truth. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He lived the perfect life you never could. He was utterly without sin. And when he died on the cross, he bore the wrath of God. He was made to be sin. For us, that we might be forgiven our sins. He rose from the grave to the defeat of sin and death. He rose to newness of life that we too might have the hope of eternal life. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And there he is interceding for us. And there he is ruling and reigning. And one day he is coming again to make all things new and to judge the living and the dead. And you, friend, you can be one of the living. You can be alive in Christ Jesus. And it takes acknowledging your sin. That's what confession is, by the way. When we say we confess, we acknowledge it. We say that what God says about it is true. You confess it before God. It takes calling Christ Jesus your Lord and meaning it. Living your life in light of that. It takes repentance, right? Turning from a life marked by sin and turning to God. And you can do nothing to give yourself life. But God has done all things necessary. You may be dead in your sins and trespasses, but God can make you alive in Christ Jesus. So turn to him, trust in him, ask him, pray to him, plead with him. Say, God, give me life. He is no miser of good gifts. He is good and is abundant in mercy and love. And brothers and sisters in Christ, remember anew what it is that you have been saved from. You were dead. You were a slave to the evil one. You were a child of wrath, destined for death. You had no hope of life. Your only hope was for fierce and right judgment from God. But that is who you were. That is no longer true of you. You serve a better master. You have eternal life. And though in the interim, before joining Christ in his glory, you may suffer and be subject to the evil acts of the ruler of this age, in this you may hope that Christ Jesus will defeat the evil one and put an end to all sin. So worship God, beloved. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Give him praise and thanksgiving, and fight against the sin in your life. It is not who you are. You are not a sinner if you are in Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to say that again because I know that we, we sometimes adopt that identity. We say, that's my identity. I'm a sinner. You are not a sinner if you're in Christ Jesus. You are a saint. You're a holy one. You are chosen by God. You are his child. You are not a child of wrath any longer. You have been changed and you are being changed. Never forget that. Never give up in your fight against sin, but press ever onward towards your Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what thanks can we give unto you? What praise can we give you for the amazing work that you have done in Christ Jesus? the gift that you have given unto us in Christ Jesus that gives us life when we were dead. Father, who are we that you should breathe your life into us and say live? We are unworthy of such grace. We confess this day, Lord, that we are unworthy of such grace. And yet, O oh gracious God, you are loving abundant in love towards us. You purpose from before the foundation of the world that we who are in Christ should be yours, that Christ should have a people, that he should have a church. Father, thank you. Thank you for your gift of grace unto us. Thank you for life given unto us. And Father, we pray for the many who lie dead. Father, the many who think they are alive, but they are dead. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon them as you had mercy upon us. Father, we pray that you would give boldness to our speech to prophesy unto them, to speak and proclaim the truth of your word unto them, that they might be reconciled unto you in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that this community around us that lies in darkness, that follows the course of this world, that, that follows after the prince of the power of the air, the evil one who is now even at work in the sons of disobedience. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon this community, that you would give life, that you would awaken your people, that they would rise up, changed, forever. Lord, that your grace and glory may resound in their lives, that they would bring you worship, the worship that you are due, the glory that is to be brought to your name. Father, do this work to your glory and for our good. So we pray in the name of our only Lord, our Master, and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.